Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along Speaking of government of, by, and for the people, which we will be doing for today's Spirit in Action program with Myron Buckles, I want to make sure you know of the imminent arrival of October 15th and the assortment of fun, profundity, and fundraising which Northern Spirit Radio is hosting on the 15th here in Eau Claire between 6 and 9 p.m. at Grace Lutheran Church. While fine dining on our gourmet homemade pizza, you can listen to Mike McCabe of Blue Jeans Nation and Matt Rothschild, perhaps best known as the longtime editor of the Progressive Magazine. They'll be bringing a powerful message of people and government and improving our world, plus there will be eight musicians presenting. In person, we'll have Ken Longquist, Madison's Minstrel for the Environment, and we'll have Eau Claire's own Squirrel Talk, bringing you the music of tiny places. We'll have more musicians from all over the USA remoting in their music. Ann Hill, Cy Khan, Peter Alsop, Magic Mama, Peter Lighty, and Tom Rowley. Check out all the details on northernspiritradio.org and RSVP so we can thoroughly prepare for your dining and auditory needs. But right now we're going to talk to Myron Buckles about voting and elections and the people's will as manifested, or not, in our democratic republic, both historically and currently. Myron taught high school history for decades, trying to equip a strong citizenry, and we featured short interviews with him called History and Our Best Future. Having just participated in the Democratic primary for Wisconsin's 3rd Congressional District, Myron brings newly experienced practical knowledge of our electoral system to the table as we visit on Myron's back porch in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Hey, Myron, it's great to have you back for Spirit in Action. It's good to be back with you, Mark. Have you fully recuperated from your long campaign stint? Not really. I don't think you probably ever do, because you anything that you put your heart and soul into, as much as I did over the course of those roughly five, maybe six months, there's a certain amount of adjustment period afterwards. And it was a very interesting time. Well, I want to draw on the knowledge that you gained in those five-plus months. I mean, I know there were months before that when you were mulling the run as well. I want to draw on your experience of running for nomination, Democratic nomination for House of Representatives. And I would like to draw also on your knowledge as a history teacher of some decades to talk about the electoral system in the United States. First thing I want you to explain, and you must have done this for your students frequently, is to describe the electoral system we have in the United States, and it's particularly its origins. Why do we have this weird thing, the Electoral College? Why are things done the way they are in the United States? Well, the Electoral College was set up quite
quite clearly to make sure that if there was a vote for the president, it would be somebody that was tolerable by the landowning class. And what people sometimes forget is that of our branches of government, and I like to say there there were four of them, even though you know we all know it's three, but there's the House of Representatives and the Senate. I count that as separate. And the judicial branch and the executive branch. And only one of those four was directly elected by the people. That's the House of Representatives. Uh, the senators were originally chosen by the state governments. The judicial branch is chosen by the president and then ratified by the Senate, which wasn't voted for by the people. And then the executive branch was set up to be the electoral college. So you cast a suggestion for president. You don't actually cast a vote. And was that codified? Was that always followed? I mean, what is the history on it? Did the electors, electoral college electors, did they always vote for who the people in their district wanted them to vote for? No, for many states, and I think there's even a couple that still exist. If an elector, which is chosen by the state parties, wants to write in Daffy Duck, they can write in Daffy Duck. Most of them now are bound by law in their own states to vote for the candidate chosen by the majority of the people in that state. But in the beginning, the electors could clearly have voted for anybody that they wanted to. The popular vote could have had no impact whatsoever. So I guess my question is, Myron, did it ever actually happen? Do we know of cases where the electors went contrary to the electorate and voted in a different direction and that changed the history of this nation? No, the biggest thing that happened with the Electoral College was that you have, I believe the number is at least seven times where a minority vote-getter has become the president. And I say minority, not in that. They did not receive over 50% of the votes cast because you can have a three-way vote, which we've had recently a couple times. And uh, over the course of history, a number of times, I mean, Lincoln's election in 1860 was a five-way race. He was very much a minority president. The majority of the population did not vote for him. But he got enough electors in the various states that did to win the presidency. So when you look at it, it's, you can say, well, there was no time where Daffy Duck was written in and then won the presidency. But we've had a number of times where the candidates did not receive a majority of the popular votes cast and was chosen as president by the Electoral College. Well, the reason I'm bringing this up, Myron, is because I think there's maybe some sense that our system is not just, that it doesn't serve the will of the people. And as you already mentioned, the electors were there so that the interests of the landowning class, that their desires, wants, needs were honored. When we started out, the United States who could actually vote? Landowning free men. Then that was pretty much it for about the first 50 years or so. I'd have to look that up. But it took quite a while before in the colonies as it turned into the country for universal suffrage. You know, universal white male suffrage was a rallying cry of some of the early political parties because not all states had that. You know, it was expected that you should have to be a landowner. And, of course, the reality is it was hard to not own land in the early days of this country because Indians did not count as far as land ownership. So people could stake a claim and have a little piece of property and they could vote. So voting participation is actually quite high in the early part of the country. As more immigrants moved in and you know less and less people had land, then it became a, a bigger issue. 
So universal white male suffrage, which was in place until the 19th Amendment, 1920, giving women the right to vote as well. You said free white landowners. Mm -hmm. That means uh, there's this thing that I don't know if we even have anymore, indentured servants. I think they're not free. No, no. There was a tremendous number of people who were denied the franchise, a wonderful term for voting throughout our history. And of course, the indentures won. And then, of course, since 1607, I think we had a slave society in this country. And they were clearly not landowners and denied the right to vote until 1870, I believe, and the 15th Amendment granted the right to vote to all males. But again, of course, that was before granting the vote to women. But shortly after the 15th Amendment was ratified, the southern states especially, immediately moved to curtail the ability of black people to vote. And I always find it kind of interesting historically when we talk about current events to deny the vote, to suppress the vote. Well, we have a long and very effective history of suppressing the vote in this country to the point where my worst prediction for this upcoming presidential election is we will have less than 50 percent of the population will vote. Some of that will be voter suppression, a very uh, maybe a fairly significant chunk, but another big chunk will be voter apathy. And considering how hard it's been to get the vote over the course of the last couple hundred years, for most people, not voting really is a, a sad, sad descriptor of our country right now. And a real slap in the face to those who, I think, really put their lives on the line. I mean, there were women who died. I think it was maybe more urgent, and the tactics were maybe more violent in England, and therefore the women there got the vote more quickly than in the U.S. Some of the other ways that people were prevented from having the vote Of course, we knew slavery or, as we said, indentured servitude, that kind of thing. That's part of it. Landowning was used as a litmus test. I think there were things like poll tax, literacy. Can you talk about some of those when they came and went? Or maybe they're not even completely gone, for all I know. The big three tactics of voter suppression all across the South were the poll tax, literacy tests, and then the grandfather clause. And I always use the grandfather clause as an example of perfect legislation. Not perfect good, but just perfect. Because the rule was if your grandfather didn't vote, you couldn't vote. Well, that is perfect for perpetuity. Your family tree will never vote with the grandfather clause in place. It was absolutely amazing. That one didn't need a constitutional amendment to overturn. A poll tax did. And, of course, the poll tax was always set high enough so that you couldn't afford it. And the literacy test, the same thing. One of the favorite questions in the literacy test is how many bubbles are there in a bar of soap. You know, when I would tell my students that, it wasn't like people lined up to try and fail that test. The people that were being denied the right to vote knew that they would never be able to pass the test. They didn't bother showing up. But that's what made some of the early people uh, who resisted that so famous and powerful. They actually showed up and then had to be told that they could not vote because most people under voter suppression simply know that it's not worth it, so they don't even try. And so those are some techniques that go back quite a ways. How did that change over time? I think some of those are post-Civil War. You know, Now you can vote because you're a free man under the latest amendments to the Constitution, so now we have to come up with new ways. So those ways were innovated. Did those continue all the way up until, what, the 1960s? I think to today. One of the biggest arguments against having to have a photo ID for voting is that photo IDs are expensive. 
and you have to go get them. The argument is, of course, voter fraud. Well, it's been studied over and over again, and it's just non-existent. There used to be voter fraud. Now we have a situation where we are so close to 50% of our population. Our total vote for the presidency is never much over 50% nationwide. Wisconsin and New Hampshire and Vermont and Minnesota, North Dakota, those states lead the country in voter turnout with high 60s into the 70s. But as a nationwide average, we're always in the 50s and have been consistently for as long as I've been watching it. And, of course, in local elections, which can be more important than a presidential election in some ways, our voter turnout is somewhere from 19 to 25 percent. People just don't vote. And so this whole fear of, you know, we have to have voter ID to keep people from cheating to vote is absolutely, it's laughable on its face if you just look at the number of people who are actually voting. And, of course, it's thousands of dollars of fine and years in jail if you get caught voting twice. And then the argument for me always is, what's the incentive? I might want to steal your television because then I will have a television. I might risk going to jail. What is my incentive for voting twice? Driving across town to cast one more vote for a candidate? Uh, There isn't any incentive there for a person to want to go into a life of crime. So it used to happen. It just doesn't happen anymore. The other part of it, of course, is for eliminating people from voting is if you have a conviction. Even if uh, in many states, including Wisconsin, even if you've served your time for what you did wrong, you can never vote again. And that's just wrong. Personally, I mean, I know the politicians say, well, that is the price you pay. And so then they can act tough on crime and so on and so forth. But if you have served your time and paid your debt to the society, why can't you vote again? And considering that we have, what is it, you know, 5% of the world's population with 25% of the prisoners, we have a significant number of people who cannot vote. And I'm in favor of letting people who are in prison vote. I, I don't think that just because you are convicted of a crime means that you give up one of your basic fundamental rights, and that's to vote. And people in prison actually would vote because they would read and study, and many of them, and, and uh, would probably cast a very educated vote. But they are simply denied the right to vote. And that is just another aspect of you know why we have such a terrible voter turnout. I guess we might as well follow that up to the current days. I think I just saw the news just recently that it was determined that officials somewhere in Wisconsin state government, that they had been denying people driver's licenses or such, which means that they didn't have picture ID, which means that they couldn't vote. Did you hear anything about that? I mean, this is part of the latest trend of how can we restrain people from voting? So what's What are the forms most currently used to try and deny people? What's the mechanism? And, of course, it's all under the excuse that we're trying to prevent fraud. I think the worst scenario that I remember hearing about was one of the states, I believe Alabama, who has the license to vote, closed many of their motor vehicle departments all across the state so that you had to drive hours to get to one. And people who have licenses say that, well, I have a license. Why why can't somebody else get one? Uh, it's one of those walk a mile in the other person's shoes types of examples. You know, we have elderly people who have been denied the right to vote. We have people in nursing homes who haven't needed a license for years and now have to get an ID to vote when everybody knows who these people are. And it is just sad because it is so unnecessary. I remember way back in... Yeah, the uh, during our uh, failed Iraq involvement where people were dipping their finger in purple ink 
to show that they voted in a free Iraqi election. We were celebrating that. They didn't have to show any ID. They just showed up and voted, and then they had to dip their finger in ink so they, they couldn't vote twice. And here in uh, the great democracy and the planet, as we like to say, we are making it harder and harder for people to vote. Well, then I think, Myron, I want to go back to where I started. So at the beginning of this country, this electoral college was created. That's one of the devices that we have. We've had for quite a while a two-party system, but it wasn't always that way, and I don't know that it inevitably needs to be that way. Why is the U.S. only two parties when many nations of the world have very active three, four, five, six parties, 20 parties? I mean, that are, I mean, we do have multiple parties in this country, don't get me wrong, but when it comes down to elections, there's really only two. Why is that, and why wasn't that always the case? Well, it pretty much was always the case. We had the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans as they organized around the uh, the wealthy landowners or the fed- Federalists that gave us much of the Constitution. And then the Democrat Republicans were the same political party, and they organized around the farmers and uh, was the issue. We had two Federalist presidents right away, George Washington and John Adams, and then we had the Revolution of 1800. We had the Democrat Republican Thomas Jefferson elected, and it was one of the, a good example of a peaceful change of power between two very hotly competing political parties. So, yes, there has been a long history of third political parties, but in this country, the the tradition has always been two, and the way that they co-opt a third party is by pretty quickly stealing the good ideas. A third party comes up and, and says, well, here's an idea I think we should do, and then one of the two parties swipes it and says, no, we, uh, we have that as well. So, you know, we have the Democratic Farmer Labor Party in Minnesota, and it's called the Democratic NPL in North Dakota because the NPL was a third party. The Farmer Labor Party was the third party, and they both were – is a regional uh, history absorbed into the Democratic Party because they co-opted the good ideas. So it's, you know, the, the Greens have a terrible time getting a foothold in the politics today. And, of course, the biggest argument I hear from many people right now is that you waste your vote, that if you vote your conscience, if you vote for the candidate that you want, you're actually voting for the opponent in the two-party system. And that's a very powerful argument for many. And it keeps people ignoring a third party that they might really actually line up with and voting for one of the two major parties. Wisconsin, where both of us live, has an unusual history, I think, maybe in in the United States, in that cities like Milwaukee had many decades of socialist mayors and there's enough of that without our throughout our state and I think flowing over into Minnesota, maybe even the Dakotas for all I know, where there were alternative parties that had a significant amount of power. That receded. Frank Zeidler was mayor of Milwaukee. He's the last socialist mayor that I know of. I, I knew him when I lived down there. Why the retreat from that? Was that just because of the Cold War period that all of a sudden being socialist was too close to being communist? Why did those other alternative parties uh, recede so much in terms of influence? You know I'm pretty staunchly anti-war, and you can tie much of the loss of third party to war footing where the third party is labeled as the anti-American party. And, of course, the socialists and the labor movement, very powerful third party, 
but World War One is just a horrible war for a lot of reasons. All wars are, but World War One, I, I think, really ranks up there for destroying a lot of good because the socialist parties, the and the labor parties, were becoming very, very powerful, and their leaders were pretty much labeled as anti-American and thrown in prison, and the party the structure destroyed. People, uh, I think quite obviously, don't want to go to jail. Then we come back to something I said earlier about the other party co-opting the good ideas. So what did the Socialist Party promote? Social Security, you know, uh, public utilities, and so on. And the Democratic Party came up and after the Great Depression took all those ideas. And so any talk of a third party pretty much went by the wayside after the Great Depression, World War I, and the Great Depression really killed that whole labor movement as far as a political force was concerned. Same thing happened up, up and down the Great Plains of the Grange and the Midwest and the NPL and in North Dakota and the Farmer Labor Party. We're speaking today with Myron Buckholz for Spirit in Action. This is a Northern Spirit Radio production. Where do you find it? On our website at northernspiritradio.org with 11 years of our programs for free listening and downloading. There's a links that you can find, and particularly you're going to find a link to interviews I've done with Myron under the name History in Our Best Future. Uh, some really wonderful insights into a number of topics. Today we're spending the full hour talking about our electoral system, about voting, about how we make our country a better democracy, and that's what's going to be my next question. But first I want to remind you that there's also a place to post comments when you come to our site. We love two-way communication. Post your comment when you visit. Also, there's a place to donate. That's how this full-time work is supported. It's not because of the government. It's not because of corporations. It's because you, the listener, support the work that we're doing. Again, Myron Buckles here. A couple months ago, he finished running for the Democratic nomination for the 3rd Congressional District in Wisconsin. He was not victorious this time. Look to the future for what results will happen then. But in the meantime, he had some real on-the-ground experience with what it means to participate in our electoral system. And I do want to ask you, Myron, about primaries, because that's something that's completely separate from the election that we have every November when we elect our representatives, our senators, our representatives, our mayors, so many other figures. But the first question I wanted to pose to you, Myron, was if you say to someone, you know, we're a democracy, they'll say, no, we're a democratic republic, or they'll say various other forms. Is there a right or a wrong way to refer to the form of government that we have in this country? And are there more true democracies in the world? Well, the closest example to true democracy historically was the birthplace, and that was the city-state of Athens, where all free Athenian males got together and voted on every issue. Then we had, there's examples like the New England Town Meeting, which still exists in small towns across the country, where if you want to vote to have a new stoplight, everybody shows up at the town hall and, and they vote. And that's that would be true democracy. The argument and the reality with the country as large as our own was that you can't have everybody vote on every issue. So the Romans gave us a republic, and they started to choose representatives to vote for the people. Um, and that's what we set up in the early days of this country with some a lot of successes and certainly a number of flaws. It demands that people participate, and it demands that people actually do show up and vote. And that's why my concern about voting turnout is so uh, is so important, because... If truly we have less than 50% or 
somewhere around 50% of the people show up to vote for president, that means that 26% of the population will effectively choose a president. And when you get down into the numbers that low, it can get really, really scary. (laughs) So I would prefer that we would be more like the Europeans and many other countries all across the world that have some incentive to vote, such as a voting holiday. Uh, Some countries even uh, give a tax break. Uh, for voting, and so there's an incentive besides just doing a civic duty. And they also make it very easy to vote, and here we're making it harder. We do have early voting going on right now in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, That is under assault in many places. I think we should have a voting – I would be very much in favor of a voting holiday for the general election. If you're going to celebrate democracy in a country that has fewer holidays than any other Western democracy, I think we should have a holiday to vote. I can get behind that. Excellent idea. Actually, automatic registration is one of the things. Instead of trying to make it more difficult again for people to register, and you know, you can't have third parties registering people. The various impediments that have been innovated and proposed over the past six years. It's really been, I think, a very noticeable change. Is this unusual, or this kind of attempt to, uh, without calling it racial, without calling it class, to find ways to prevent certain racial minorities and certain political interests to prevent them from voting. I mean, we've already talked about things like poll taxes or literacy or land ownership, which effectively do that same kind of thing. In the last 50 years, is this novel? One of the things that I marvel at when I see the news is long lines to vote. I grew up in rural North Dakota. I lived in a city of 7,000 people. Now I live in a city of 65,000 people. I've never waited more than a few minutes to vote. And then I look at inner city Milwaukee and all over the country on Election Day, and they talk about people lining up and waiting hours to vote. One has to ask some really hard questions about that, that the city leaders don't know how many people are going to vote. So they just guess and set the number of voting places. In my lifetime, in my experience, I just walk up and vote. There's no line. And you can say I lived in a rural situation, but the reality is the leaders of this, the areas in which I lived simply know how many people are going to show up and vote, and they prepare accordingly. I have to believe that it's done on purpose, that when you you know have voting machines in places for roughly 10% of the people who show up, that has got to be done on purpose, and that is insidious and uh, I think probably borders on criminal because that's the voter suppression that you are attempting to get. One of my favorite stories of voting, I taught at a real small rural school in North Dakota, and little rural schools were the precinct locations, and frequently you had voting in the hallways and of these little schools. I saw it often. And I was in the building during election day, and a, a nicely dressed person driving a large car pulled up right in front of the door. And I happened to be walking past and saw it. And this person walked in and says, where do I vote? This person had voted in the building a number of elections. But because of numbers, it was decided that all the, the voting would be moved to another town about seven miles down the road. Now, this is rural North Dakota, so it's a nice seven-mile drive. And the person looked at me and scoffed and said, I'm not driving that far to vote, and turned around and walked out. What made that experience even more special was this is when the Nicaraguans were voting in the mid-'80s, and it was during the Sandinista Revolution, and the Contras, the government supported, were shooting at people to try to keep them from voting. 
And on the news at that time was interviews with people standing in line to vote in Nicaragua under the, with the sound of gunfire in the background. And the person who just talked to me couldn't drive their big fancy air-conditioned car seven miles to go vote. I might say it's lamentable, but there's a, another story that's out there which goes, why should I bother voting? What difference does my vote make? Now, my friend Sandy McKinney, who's on the board for Norton Spirit Radio, she ran for the city council here. She lost by seven votes. So a difference of four people voting differently than they had could have made her the council member. Or eight people getting out to vote who weren't voting she would have won that election. And so in some cases, local elections, it's easy to see what difference you make. One of the major objections that's brought up to voting is that my vote doesn't count because, in fact, the whole system's rigged. And by that, we mean that even when you get someone into Congress, they don't necessarily vote the way the people go. As a matter of fact, according to the Princeton study, when was that from, 2014 or whatever, that came out and it was analyzing a couple decades previous, they found out that there was no correlation between what the people wanted and what the people in the Senate and the House were actually voting for, that those people's voting could only be correlated to the top 1%. What they want is what gets passed in law. So could you challenge me to why I should risk driving seven miles in my air-conditioned car to the neighboring town when my vote isn't going to count anyway? You already alluded to the local elections, which are frequently decided by only a couple of votes. The 1960 presidential election, I think, is still considered the closest election in modern history, and that was one vote per precinct. Now, there's hundreds of thousands of precincts all across the country, but John Kennedy defeated Richard Nixon by one vote per precinct. You know, So showing up to vote, if, well, if you don't, it's obvious you don't. We had the 2000 election, which... No rational person I've ever talked to believes that Al Gore would have taken us into Iraq. And the 2000 election was uh, Al Gore actually won by close to 600,000 popular votes. But because of the Electoral College and because of the way it's divided up amongst the states, he lost a couple of key states. He lost the election. Well, George W. Bush took us to Iraq, and we will never, ever in my lifetime, you know, live down the ramifications of that. So those people in Florida who didn't vote... Uh, the people all across the country in states that went for Bush over Gore, that legacy is there for the rest of our lives. So voting is important, and it does matter. Now, I will encourage your listeners to go to one of my favorite websites to point out how our politics, our elected representatives differ from what people want, and that's the website politicalcompass.org. When you go to that website, you'll be asked to take a short, well, it's not tremendously short, test. And then you are placed on a four-square graph to show if you're an authoritarian, a libertarian, or a conservative or a liberal, or some mixture thereof. People are surprised frequently to find out where they score, considering who they vote for. You can go to that website and see how Obama scored compared to Mitt Romney and John McCain in those last two elections. And people be extremely surprised to find out that Obama and McCain and Romney weren't all that far apart. They were authoritarian conservatives based on things they, they have said and done in their, their written and, and spoken words over the course of years. And it's very much a, a nonpartisan 
nonpartisan website. I had a student once tell me that when uh, she actually scored libertarian liberal and she didn't believe she was and her father criticized it, I said, well, did he take the test? So she went home and told him to take the test and he scored very authoritarian conservative just like he knew he would. And so I said when she came back to class, well, apparently you and your father have a difference of opinion in how you answered the questions. And I can relate my own experience with the primary election that I just participated in. I ran against a candidate who voted for the war in Iraq and who was a huge proponent of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and also a supporter of the medical corporations and big banks. And I had a number of people tell me that they were going to vote for him regardless and one person in particular I sent a little true and false test to on some basic issues. And, of course, I gave the answers. And the response was, well, good point, because I knew full well that this person I talked to did not support any of these major issues that my opponent was voting for. And they still voted for him because incumbency has a certain amount of clout. And we know that 90 percent of incumbents win and that there's a number of reasons for that. But nevertheless, it's very difficult to unseat an incumbent. So what we're about here for a spirit in action is solutions for the future. We're doing good. We're healing the world. We're making it better. What can we do about incumbency? What can we do about the fact that no matter who we elect, it seems that the oligarchy gets to make the decisions for us? What can we do to have a better country, a more democratically represented country? What can we do to make this world a better place? Uh, I really like what is called instant runoff voting. Now, earlier we talked about the primary system, and Fightin' Bob LaFollette was instrumental in bringing the primary system to Wisconsin because in large part, like today, uh, 100 years ago, the major political parties chose the candidates. Frequently, those candidates really didn't have a tremendous difference. And so the people got to vote for the hand-picked candidate of the major political parties led by the wealthy and the powerful. So Fightin' Bob LaFollette and the progressive movement came up with a primary system that now the people can choose the candidates and try to steal some of that power from the oligarchs of 100 years ago. And that worked for a while. The oligarchs have stolen it back. And we saw that happen with the Clinton-Sanders campaign this year, I think, very clearly, that Sanders was very popular, but he could not win because of a number of reasons. But one of them was the Democratic establishment was simply lined up against him. And the rules were just something that was impossible to overcome. So I love instant runoff voting. And you can look it up. IRV, there's some great simulations, and you will also find some people who really, really hate it. But instant runoff voting allows you to rank your candidates so that we have four presidential candidates this year. You could rank them one, two, three, four and cast a vote. The beauty of instant runoff voting is that after the votes are run the first time, which in our technological age is not a very big task, if no candidate receives over 50% of the vote, you can run the ballots again and your second choice can kick in. I'm not explaining it very well, but the simulations are wonderful. And the end result means that you will have a candidate that will receive over 50% of the vote. It would eliminate the expense of the primary system because the primary system was done at a time where there wasn't the technology. You had to show up at the polling place to vote. Now we can do it in so many different ways. I really like the way it looks, and it's actually being done in a number of uh, places. Minnesota has implemented it. I believe the city of Minneapolis has it for their local elections in Minneapolis or St. Paul, where you have a list of candidates, and you choose your first choice. And if you only want to vote for one person, you just vote for one person. But if you have 
a second choice. For instance, if you want to vote for Jill Stein, but you don't dare because that would be in effect casting in a way a vote for Donald Trump in that example. You don't dare vote for Jill Stein, even though you might want to. Instant runoff voting allows you to rank Jill Stein number one and maybe Hillary Clinton two and so on in that political example. And then if Hillary Clinton gets over 50 percent of the votes in the first ballot, she wins anyway. If she doesn't, then it gets counted again. So it sounds more complicated than it actually is. And I know I'm not explaining it very well, but I encourage your listeners to look it up. And by the way, we have the technology to do it, especially in our state of Wisconsin where we use the optical scanners, which I like, even though they're still a machine, you still have a paper ballot so that if a scanner breaks down, if there's some question of how the vote was cast, you have a paper ballot and you can go back and you can count the paper. I'm a real skeptic of voting on computer without a paper printout because that has been proven over and over again how easy it is to hack. You need a paper ballot. I also would suggest that we need public financing of elections. The experience that I had worked out to be somewhat correct. I was told that I needed to raise somewhere between five to $600,000 to run a campaign in a district. Uh, district uh, house seats weren't that expensive only a few decades ago, but they become that way. And a study that was released this summer said that the average loser in a congressional district spends about five hundred dollars to $600,000. So I was told to raise the amount of money that it takes to lose. The average winner spends over a million, which my opponent did. Who has the time or the wherewithal to try and make that many contacts and raise that much money? It's very daunting. And quite frankly, it was one of the biggest reasons why I thought maybe I wouldn't do it. And if I don't run again, that would be the reason trying to raise a king's ransom when over 50% of our working class people don't make $30,000 a year. I'm supposed to raise a million dollars to get a job that I only have for two years. And then in two years, I raise another million dollars again to keep that job. That is insanity. And we need public financing of elections, a few pennies on the taxes. And then people could step up and say, I would like to run because I can do it. There's a little bit of money and everybody would be held to the same standard and now it would become a candidacy of ideas. My opponent refused to debate me and I know why. He had nothing to gain because he had name recognition and money and it was not a campaign of issues. It was a campaign of me trying to tell people who I am, the fact that I'm even in the race. You know, by the way, the election was August 9th, and I still have people ask me, so how are you doing in your campaign? Because they don't even know it was over. It was hardly, barely covered by the media as well. So instant runoff voting is a favorite, but also uh, we have to have public financing of elections to break the hold of the oligarchs on who gets to run. If you accept, as I do, that the Princeton study is accurate, that we do not have a democracy anymore, it's not a representative democracy, they're not voting for what we want. If you do accept that, then my question is, did we ever have a good representative democracy? Has it always been the oligarchs running the country, making the decisions? Has the will of the people ever been the norm for our government? One of my tests of presidencies is what was accomplished in the presidency that mattered for the poor and the working class. And by using that test, when you look at our 44 presidents, you eliminate about 40 of them because they didn't really do anything that really benefited the poor and working class over the course of any appreciable time. The one thing that benefited the poor and working class in this country, above all else, was the Great Depression. 
And the Great Depression caused politicians and people to get out and vote, and they voted their interests, and we've gotten Social Security. And people forget that there were many, many politicians left in Washington at the time of the 1964-65 Lyndon Johnson era of Medicare and Medicaid, which, of course, are argued about today, but very popular and very important programs that actually do benefit the poor and the working class. So one time in American history, as far as modern American history, did we have a group of politicians rally around and do something that benefited the poor and the working class, and that was because of a little thing called the Great Depression. I don't want to live through another Great Depression. We've been close a couple times, and you look at the banking crisis of 2008, uh, none of the people that caused that crisis, which decimated the savings of the working class, went to prison. Uh, they all landed on their feet, and we argue about whether or not we should have controls on banking. Well, after the Great Depression, we got controls on banking. So nothing is going to change uh, with either candidate that gets elected as far as the, the power of the oligarchs and the bankers and the people that, that own the most property in this country with this upcoming election. And that's something that we should watch very, very carefully. You know, I'm curious, Myron, and by the way, folks, we are speaking with Myron Buckles. He's retired, and you can just watch him cheering for this one. He's a retired history teacher, taught in high schools for some decades before retiring. Almost two years ago, he retired, and uh, since then, he hasn't ceased his efforts to educate our society. He ran in the recent election here in the 3rd Congressional District of Wisconsin. He ran for the seat in the House of Representatives, did not get the nomination of the Democratic Party, but who knows what the future will bring. What I can say is that he's been studying seriously our country, our democracy, how we help people, how we make this a better world for so many decades. And because you have such a deep well of knowledge about history, you referred to, I think, four times in the history of this country when a president actually served the interests of the people. You named one or maybe two of them. You, you named under Franklin Delano Roosevelt's administration following the Great Depression, and I think maybe you were referring to under LBJ, the Great Society Programs. That's two, but that leaves two others that I don't know which ones you were referring to. I always have to give Teddy Roosevelt his due because domestically he did some things that had long-lasting implications for labor and for the environment as well. And when I say that, about 40, you can find little instances where people can argue. But in the big issues, when you look at it, you get down to maybe only two or three. And the two big ones for our present population that still lives is Franklin Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson and those great society programs and the New Deal programs that still exist today. So when we're talking current, I always uh, I, I can go back and t start talking about George Washington and, and Abraham Lincoln as well. But when I'm talking current issues with the poor and working class for our lives today, it really is just two. Since I've had you on this program before, Myron, we've explored a little bit your religious, your spiritual background. I'm wondering how that has grown and changed over the last years. I mean, you became particularly active around the time of the Iraq War, and I remember you mentioning in a previous interview about walking out or deciding no longer to be part of a Lutheran church that you had been attending when you heard the rah-rah support for war. How have your spiritual or religious or 
And mind you, for me, spirituality is much larger than just a particular church body. It's a question of people of belief who are seeing the big pictures for society and participating together in community for that. So my question is, how has that continued to evolve for you? Which congregations do you worship with? Well, I was alerted to the folly of war by a student way back in 1991. And I had always been skeptical of war growing up as I did watching Vietnam on television, as so many people in my generation did. I was too young to serve, but old enough to watch it almost every day and see what Uncle Walter was telling us about the conflict. Remember, it wasn't a war in Vietnam. In 1991, with the invention of the VCR, I was able to bring tapes of news programs into my classes. And, of course, the first Gulf War was on, and I was taping the news. And I was showing a clip of it. And one of my students showed up with a No Blood for Oil t-shirt on and pointed out that when I was showing the video of the buildings exploding in Baghdad, very adamantly pointed out that there were people dying in those buildings. And I just always give them a lot of credit for that because I was just showing the technology and the news and and not really thinking deeply about it. And he caused me to think much, much more deeply about it than I had been. From that point on, I became very, very skeptical of war. And then, of course, the run-up to the second Iraq war in 2003 struck me as just, well, along with millions of other people all across the globe, a real march of folly. And so I identify with the peaceniks. I always like to point out that Jesus of Nazareth as a nickname, and one of them is the Prince of Peace. I just observed a middle 20s, early 30s man ride a bicycle past my house, and I have a 48-inch diameter peace sign on my house, and I saw him look at my peace sign and scoff. Yeah, peace. You know, It was not a thumbs up or a smiling thing. It was clearly a criticism of the fact that I have a peace sign. I watched him ride away, and I just wondered what he has learned about war. So that is where I'm at spiritually. There is so much that we can do in a world to make it a better place, and so much of our efforts are wrapped up in war that if we turn just a small percentage of those efforts into peace, food, medicine, clothing, and shelter, we would have a much, much better world. And since I obviously know you well enough, Myron, I would say that would mean that you're part of at least two congregations. There's the Peace Corner up in Chippewa Falls, and there's what used to be called the Iraq Moratorium, the third Friday of the month when a group of us gather on a corner here at Highway 93 and Gulf Road in Eau Claire at 5 o'clock stand for an hour, letting people know that war is not the answer. Those are two congregations. Any other congregations of people that you stand with who you, you think really have their, their finger on that pulse of the good of this world? Anybody who is working to better the conditions for the poor and the working class, I consider a member of my congregation. Yeah, that totally works for me. Well, I think from today's point of view, the fact that we got universal male suffrage following the Civil War, or at least theoretically we got that, and that when women were added by amendment to our Constitution, they got included in universal suffrage. While we recognize those as good, have those actually changed the results for our society? Did what got enacted by our legislatures and our Congress and carried out by our executive branch, have those things changed because the voters changed? A lot of times in recent elections, they've talked about the difference between how women would vote and men would vote and that that tilted in a certain direction. 
did that actually happen when those people were brought into the voting population? We just celebrated the 100th anniversary of Jeanette Rankin being elected to the House of Representatives from the great state of Montana. And that was in 1916. And she cast uh, one of a number of people, but a small minority, to cast a vote against World War I. She was roundly criticized for that and lost her seat in that election. She was elected before we had the 19th Amendment, however, because many of the Western states granted women the right to vote in their state elections from the beginning. And so it was one of those Great Plains issues where women worked side by side with men and were earned some respect much more than in the big cities of the East Coast where men did not allow women to vote. So in that regards, you know, there hasn't been a lot of change. We celebrated the 18-year-old vote in 1972. Young people turn out badly. It's the smallest percentage of any age group that votes is the 18 to 26-year-old age group. They could clearly change things. The Bernie Sanders phenomenon very much was driven, uh, in, in large part, driven by that young vote. The oldest guy to run was most inspiring to the youngest people. And there is a huge fear that those young people won't vote because Sanders is not in the election. It had a little bit of an impact in my primary. Those uh, Sanders voters would have been a logical constituency for me. And the turnout in the vote that I just participated in was somewhere in 13, 14 percent of the total population that could have voted, actually voted in that primary election. So the answer is, generally speaking, no, that without major earth-shaking issues like Great Depression and war, the powers in Congress don't change regardless of who is voting. There was a number of the suffragettes who pointed out that what are we going to get when we get a right to vote? And they were very skeptical of how much they could change things by voting. To a large extent, you can see that some of that was right. We just have uh, the end of our first black presidency. And over the past eight years, the situation for young black people living in our cities has gotten worse. You know, that may be an example that, that works, is that just because you have some symbol doesn't change things in a society as large as ours without some kind of driving force to actually cause meaningful change. It's not only the Electoral College which can skew who actually gets into office. There's this thing called gerrymandering that happens. And we had a particular case of that following 2010 when they redistrict in Wisconsin and I think around the nation. Because Republicans were successful in the 2010 election, they got to do the redistricting, and they did it pretty severely. Now, my understanding was, and I I hope you'll correct me, but in the following elections for Congress, even though maybe 55 60% of the people voted for Democrats in our state legislature, the Republicans got an unassailable majority because of the way districting happened. Is this something that's been throughout our history in the United States, in Wisconsin? Has gerrymandering always been controlling who gets into office because they do that so skillfully? The term gerrymander is colonial. One of our first political cartoons that ran in the colonial days showed a district that looked like a salamander. And so that name, Jerry, was a politician of the time, and salamander because the district looked like a multi-legged tailed, skinny, snaky creature. They called it the gerrymander. And here we are in 2016 still using it. 
Iowa probably has the gold standard as how to stop that. You have a, a nonpartisan group of retired judges who takes the technology at hand and draws districts based on population. They don't have the gerrymander. Districts look like they make sense, where you don't have to drive miles across somebody else's district to get the voters in your own. The example within Wisconsin here was uh, Stevens Point is a a city in a in a county in the very much in the center part of our state. The congressional district that I ran in was historically always just western counties along the Mississippi River, west coast of Wisconsin. But in 2010, they drew the lines and connected a county by adding some strips of other counties and put that particular county into the third congressional district. And so it looks dumb. It doesn't look like a district that anybody would draw. It's not as bizarre as some because some are well, you have to look it up. It's it's laughable. There's strips that are only city blocks wide that connect chunks in order to control the vote and make it either a Democratic or a Republican district based on who's in charge when the districts are drawn. And it's it's a bad system. It really is a bad system because you mentioned that you can actually have a majority of people vote for one particular party and then lose the election because of how it's done. There's always so much more we could talk about, but we'll have to save it for another time, Myron. As always, I find myself enriched in knowledge and encouraged in energy to do the good work by talking with you. Thanks so much for joining me again for Spirit in Action. Well, it's been my pleasure talking to you. That was my perennial favorite commentator, Myron Buckholz of Eau Claire, Wisconsin, retired from decades of enriching our growing citizens by teaching history. Check out my series of short interviews with him on the NorthernSpiritRadio.org website called History and Our Best Future. Remember October 15th and the Northern Spirit Radio fundraiser. Full info on our website and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.